You're listening to Of Slights and Men with Benji and Jacob. A Daily Magician Production. Hello and welcome back to Of Slights and Men. Uh, We are very excited today because uh, we're actually joined by uh, two two British lads for, for once. We, we've had one British lad on, we had, we had Stephen Bridges, uh, but now we've, we've got all four of us. So this, this is going to be a good one. Uh, we're excited. Um, lots of, yeah, lots of fun stuff to come, Benji. I think if you, if you want to give them a, a quick intro before we get into it. Yeah, I mean, so we have uh, Morgan and West on, and I think the only thing you really need to know about them is that they are magicians, uh, time travelers, and all-around spiffing chaps. How'd I do with that uh, delivery? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, it was fine. Yeah, know. yeah. yeah. I, I did, like, I, I, you need more laconic than we would usually go for, but that's fine. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> and also the double act timing is. Uh, I think it's you know it's quite important, but no, it's good. It's good. Yeah, we are indeed magicians, time travelers, and all around spiffing chaps. I think also in a visual medium, you can see me do the little kind of like thrust of the arm and kick of the leg at the same mm-hmm. time. I think that adds yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's important. <laughs> Um, but no, seriously, uh, Morgan and West, in, in case you don't know, are uh, a duo act of, of British uh, magicians. They've uh, fooled Penn and Teller. I like to lead with that because... Uh... Uh, who hasn't nowadays? <laughs> yeah, everyone, everyone's done it these days, haven't they? <laughs> well, well I, mean, I, I can feel bad my hands and say I, I have not yet fooled Penn and Teller uh, that I know of. Um, they've, they've published a best-selling magic book, Parlor Tricks, that we'll probably get into later. And now, uh, what what clearly must be their their crowning achievement? Um, we have them on the podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. Everything has led to this moment. Yeah. yeah. This is it. We retire after this. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we certainly won't do any shows for a couple of months after this. Yeah. Whether that's related to the podcast or not, who knows? <laughs> this podcast is so good. We're going to take a couple of months off just to recover. <laughs> we'll, we'll take it. We'll take it. So I'm going to lead with a hard hitting question that you've probably never been asked before. Um, and that is, uh, are you guys a law firm? Uh, no, we're a Porsche dealership in LA, though. Porsche dealership in LA. Uh, yeah. I think we are a Porsche dealership in LA, yeah. Um, they're also an insurance firm somewhere as well, but not a law firm. I don't think we're a law um, firm. I think we usually hit top of Unless, Google unless there might be, uh, unless that someone, once someone started up, I'll be cross. Yeah. I'll yeah. Cross. I mean, I, I would feel bad for the people that, you know, to get in some kind of like personal injury accident. <laughs> And they're really just trying to like sort their life out, <laughs> and they're searching. Oh, we we are going to be no help. Find for them. Just, we, yeah. we these two be... time traveling magicians. Yeah, we will be no help. At best, I can help them solve some sort of high school maths. That's about it. Yeah. Well, that actually is a, another question I had for you, which is I, I, in your uh, Penn and Teller kind of promotional reel, um, it mentioned you guys were math, math and science teachers, um, and in the same school, right? Yeah, I mean, this yes, is it was a big school. Ten, yes. ten years ago now um, that we were we were teachers. We, in fact, after that first Penn and Teller series aired, um, we uh, quit our teaching jobs not four months later. So <laughs> it was it was it, that that reel became very out of date very quickly. Yeah, and to this day, people still say, "So you're teachers?" I'm like, "No, no <laughs> haven't been for ages." Yeah, yeah. So when and, did you uh, take that leap? That's interesting, though. Like when 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 did you? So it was like. It's interesting that it like coincided with like Penn and Teller. When did you decide? You know what? No more high school maths. So no we filmed that that particular series of Penn and Teller Foolish was filmed uh, just before the the summer break, um, and we had intended to teach for another whole year. Was was the plan? Hmm. Um, but things kind of accelerated a bit faster than we were anticipating because we were doing the Edinburgh Fringe that year, and because we were on. Um, uh, uh, at the time a reasonably popular television program that back when television was a thing rather than just streaming services that everyone ignores after five minutes um, <laughs> our, our tiny little 80 seat room at the Edinburgh Fringe sold out every day and um, uh, a, a producer and, and friend of ours who's now who now runs the Perth uh, Festival Fringe in Australia at the time she took acts out to the Adelaide Fringe in Australia and she said to us at the end of that festival how about I take you guys out to Adelaide and we were like, great, when's that? And she was like, February. And we were like, mm, we're teaching. And she was like, we could not teach. And we were like, we could not teach. We could not teach. Uh, think of the children. Uh, we did think of the children. And then we also thought of the children. And so yeah. we, we, we um, think of the children works two ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and then we left. So that was that. Yeah. 
And that's that's funny then. So a lot of people might assume it was off the back of Penn and Teller, but it was more just kind of coincided. Penn and Teller sort of sped things up a little bit. Yeah, at that point, we'd been performing together for a few years and done a bunch of shows at the Fringe and stuff. And we had a five-year plan. We had a five-year plan, and we'd spent every weekend gigging up and down the country in village halls in Cheshire and Northumbria and getting very little, and like driving to Soho on a Wednesday after mm. Wednesday evening to do a cabaret gig, then driving back to school. Like, so we were working lots, and we were, the plan was always to leave. And so essentially the first opportunity that came up that was like, well, you actively can't do this at the same time as teaching, was like, well, right. now is the time to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so how did... How did that? Yeah, sorry, Bench. How, how did that happen? Because I kind of, I now have this kind of like mental image of you know, uh, oh my gosh, now I'm actually scared to say your name wrong, Reese. Okay, that's correct. Perfect. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just everyone that, just everyone that wasn't here before we started recording, uh, Benji didn't know how to say his name. So. We had the challenge of of Welsh pronunciation, but that's fine. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, well, it was just Benji that was challenged in particular, but um. <laughs> Uh, well, this is uh, I've been thinking of his name as Ben He the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that Spanish? Yeah, Spanish. Yeah, the best Spanish Jay gets here. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, um, I, I was I was interested because you know I kind of kind of have this mental image now of you know uh, Reese is performing in one corner of the teachers' lounge, Rob's in the other. You know, you kind of slowly walk backwards and and bump into each other. But I'm sure that's not how it how it all started. I mean, it'd be great if it was. But how how did you guys get, get Actually, together? I heard, yeah, no, that I'll jump on this because one of my questions was that um, I went to the the veritable treasure trove of information that is the YouTube comment section, and uh, somebody had mentioned that as a student of of uh, or, or an attendee of your uh, the school that you taught in, you guys would occasionally walk into each other's classrooms to do tricks. And I, I wanted to know if that was true. If it was just yeah, that's absolutely not, that's not, true. not at all. That true. is not in the first place. <laughs> part true. We barely saw Why each other during a school right. day. Um, so I mean, yeah. If nothing else, we the school we taught at was on three separate sites, which were two miles apart. Time, and I was on most of the time. We were two miles apart. I was on West Sites. So we were like two or four miles apart most of the day. You mean you mean people lied on the internet? Oh, I no. know. Shocking. Oh, Shocking. It turns out we're not actually time travelers. Um, so. <laughs> What? Yeah, I know. Uh, well, we are just forwards in time just at the rate forward. of one second per second. Um, so we, we met at university. Um, we we're both doing physics degree, uh, physics and chemistry degrees, but we met doing um, theatre. We used to do a lot of student theatre. And mm. we were in a, a production of Terry Pratchett's uh, Weird Sisters together um, and discovered we had a very similar sense of humour. We sort of got on very, very well. Um, and I was the the following term. I was going to be doing a production of Inspector Calls, and I didn't have a lighting designer. And Rob used to do lighting at college, and so I said, "Do you want to do the lighting?" And Rob went, "Yeah, I've got Ooh. nothing to do." Um, and thus began uh, yeah. up till now lifelong friendship. The rest um, is history. Yeah, uh, and actually, the the kind of the, the teaching in the same school was by dint of I was applying for a job in that school, and we were living together at the time, and. Uh, by circumstance, they I could take a sabbatical. They they offered me a job with the provision that I could have a sabbatical if I needed to go and do some magic work because there was something on the horizon that we might need. Um, and that was for a maths job. And the next week there was a science job coming up. And so I came home and I said to Rob, there's a science job in the school. The school's absolutely fine. Uh, and also they've given me a sabbatical, so you should apply. Uh, and he did. <laughs> so that was that. And I got it. Yeah. But yeah, so we, we were performing together... Um, we were performing together not only before we were teachers, we were performing together before, before we did we any magic. magic. Before we mm. had e- even, oh. even picked up a deck of cards. That's interesting. So so when did you guys start? When did when did the magic magic craze hit you? Yeah, actually I'll I'll chip in and answer for them because I heard on a podcast that you it was um you were it definitely wasn't before you were twenty, is how I remember you phrasing it. Which I thought Thank was you out doing research. Yeah, no, it's, it's, we were in our 20s at university. Um, Rob picked up a deck of cards. He used to play a lot of poker and someone wanted to learn some shuffles. I really liked Darren Brown and picked up his book, Tricks of the Mind, um, and uh, went from there, really. And then because we knew each other and we both discovered that we were getting into magic independently, we sort of spurred each other on. And, um, uh, you know, it would be that thing of, oh, I've learned this trick this week. What can you do? Oh, I've learned this trick. And think, and just having, I mean, with any hobby, I think, but having someone to share it with does help maintain your enthusiasm for it mm. and and also allows you to bounce ideas off each other and work with things and, and I think as well avoid the pitfalls of your own interaction with other magicians being on the internet. Yeah, I think that's interesting because 
I'd say for, for, so for me and Jacob, it gets very interesting. And I'm sure you maybe had a somewhat similar experience um, when you when you produce your book, which we can talk about in a minute. When you perform magic um, as kind of like a hobby and then when you do it as a career. And then so, I don't know, when your time off from magic is spent doing magic. And so we run this magic business and every day is magic, right? And so occasionally one of us is like, you know what, bro, I'm going to say something crazy today. I think I've actually had enough of magic for today. And everyone's like, oh, it's okay, you know, kick back, do what you want, I'll, I'll handle the magic for the rest of the day. Um, maybe we're just weak, but I wonder if that's ever happened for you. Oh, magic is not a hobby of ours. Yeah. It, it was. It Once upon a time, it was a hobby of ours, and that, now it is very much our business. But also, Morgan and West now are less of a magic... We're, we're not sort of... We are magicians, obviously. Mm-hmm. But right now, and for the last year or so at least, our work has largely been just performing in theatres, not even doing magic. Hmm. And so we are essentially now a two-man theatre company. But yeah, yeah you, mm-hmm. you never find us at home reading a magic book for fun or fiddling with deck of cards or whatever. Mm. Because partly when you, yeah, like you say, when you do magic all the time, you don't want to do it in your in your limited free time. And also mm. we've realised as our career has gone on, even when we were doing magic shows, we didn't need to learn the latest slide or read so-and-so's new book or whatever mm. because that is magic for hobbyists and there's nothing wrong with being a magic hobbyist but the majority of magic that is put out and produced and everything is magic for hobbyists and when you become a professional you right. probably know enough magic yeah and certainly when you're time traveling victorian style magicians your corner of the market is somewhat more niche yeah exactly and it, it, and really sort of the uh one of the things we kind of advocate in terms of being a character actor and having a very distinct shtick or look or whatever, it's partly because in the performing industry, you want to stand out from the crowd and want to do that. And if you're going to stand out from people, doing everyone learning the same tricks that have just been released or everyone buying the latest like new thing that everyone, whatever it be it a stage piece or a close-up piece or a I don't know, double cross or whatever it is, when everyone does them as they come out, then every magician is doing the same stuff. Whereas if you've got a shtick that means, oh, I can't really do double cross because it would be weird to me to use a Sharpie mm. or whatever. The sort of flip side of that is going, which means that I won't go to a gig and do a trick and have someone go, a guy did this last week. Mm. Right. Huh. Well, that's interesting because I'm, I'm really, uh, one thing that we really like to do on this podcast is, is talk a lot, <laughs> not about magic. Well, it's not a podcast, the of, of, the idea, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like as as far as just we like to bring in different thoughts and kind of different perspectives, and and I like what you guys. It's, it's interesting because you talk about you know like how it's a theatre show, and it's kind of interesting. Obviously, it seems like to me your brand is based around you too, right? Rather than magic in general, it's interesting that you've been able to branch into that of just being Morgan West, right? Rather than magician. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it comes from a a place of you know certainly used to really enjoy magic when we were younger but as we've gotten older moving away from it and sort of yeah it stopped it stopped being a hobby a long long time ago and it lets you sort of broaden your horizons a little bit i feel well, we were talking to someone years ago do you know who tape faces well the, i don't the, know him but the, yeah no, but do you, do you know of the performer tape face Pre- formerly known as the boy with yeah. tape on his face who is a sort of <laughs> comedic mind essentially mm-hmm. um, we were talking with someone about about his show and about his work and people know him um and saying that the goal with him was always that people would come to see Tapeface. They wouldn't come to see whatever it was Tapeface was doing. Right. And our, our, our thing when it was the same is that when people come to see a Morgan West show, it's because they're coming to see a Morgan West show. It's not necessarily right. that they want to see magic. They yeah. want to see the specific kind of thing that Morgan and West do, which allows us to, if we want, not do a magic. So our, our mm-hmm. most recent touring show was a science show, mm-hmm. which is us doing science experiments and science demonstrations on stage in the style of Morgan and West and as Morgan and West. So with that theatrical style and everyone, everyone says like, it feels like a Morgan and West show. And our friend Matt Parker said, it feels like a science show done to the tune of a magic show. Hmm. But I, I think very few people left that show cross that we weren't doing magic tricks. Hmm. Well, you kind of invalidate the competition in a way. It was probably not your intention going into it, but when somebody's trying to book magicians, it's like, all right, let's see uh, how many magicians are there. Whereas when it's, Let's book Morgan and West. How many Morgan and Wests are there? Oh, no, that's very deliberate. Yeah, exactly. we, is, you should always, you, you have to make a decision. And that decision is either to stand out 
or to be a, appeal to everyone. Th- those are your two options, and sort of doing half and half doesn't really work. Yeah, because you can't. There is an there is a school of thought for, especially if you're a close up magician who does weddings and stuff, wanting to be as safe a bet as possible, and just saying, "Look, I'm very reliable. I'm very good. I'm very untruthful." And so, basically, going if you want a wedding magician, you might as well book me. Whereas we wanted to have the other thing of going, there will be some people that will look at us and go, no, we're not getting those dogs. Mm. But there will be other people that look at us or see our shows or whatever and see that. I can tell you just by looking at the poster that that is exactly the kind of show I want to see. And we are now at a stage where we have fans and stuff that will come and see whatever we do. And that, that's that's the interesting thing because it's like, it's kind of like that business print, the business principle of like almost like self-aggrandizement, and also just creating a brand that's based not solely around what you do, but rather around you. And like you said, that's interesting what you were saying. Like, oh, now we have fans that would just come to whatever we do. That's the whole point, right? <laughs> like that—that's the whole point of building this brand around both of you, rather than than what you do. And I'm, I'm interested. How did that philosophy come about? Was it always from the beginning? That's what you knew you wanted to do. Or was it just because like that was how you wanted to perform and it became this thing or was it always you, your intention? It's, it's all about doing things because you want to do them. Um, I, I would argue that whilst we do have a brand, inverted commas, and we're sort of vaguely conscious of that brand, we don't care about it as a brand. We care about it because we find it fun and that's the thing we find most interesting. And um, when we got into magic, we, we, look, we looked at magic and went, this is rubbish. Like a lot of this is rubbish yep. and I don't want to do rubbish. I want to do good <laughs> stuff. And we do magic that we think, like we do magic that we want to see. We do magic that we think is good and other people seem to agree with us, but we're not, it's not, it's not purely from a, what makes the most business sense way, but we just look at people and go, a lot of people talk about how great they are and they suck. So I'm not going to listen to them on what they do. We should just do what we want to do, what we think is good. And obviously part of that was looking at the fact that everyone did the same stuff and going, well, I don't want to do the same stuff as everyone else. Like in our early days, we came, because when we were doing the fringe stuff, before we did the fringe doing um, magic, we would do it at the fringe doing sort of improv comedy and, and plays and stuff. And the idea that in like a comedy situation, you would go on stage and do something that someone else was doing in their show is unthinkable. Mm-hmm. The idea that, oh, me and so-and-so end on the same gag would be unthinkable. Whereas the number of magicians that go up and and are all doing a Rubik's Cube thing or are all doing a Magic Square or whatever and seem totally okay with the fact that that audience might have literally been in someone else's show an hour before and seen this same trick. We used to run a Magic Night in Oxford years ago now, um, eight years ago, where we had to start telling... We did it once a month and we had, we had two acts each month on it and we had to start telling people... Please don't do anything with the Invisible Deck. Some people come to the show every month and they have now seen seven versions of the Invisible Deck and it is month five. Yeah. Hmm. So, <laughs> just like... Yeah, yeah what, what about... Um, yeah, please, I'm actually asking because I genuinely don't know the answer to this. I know you guys have uh, decades more experience with theatre than I do. So what, what's the difference between... I know what you're getting, getting out with, the, with the, the comedian. It'd be ludicrous if they all ended on the same gag. Um, but when, when it's, I don't know, say like a dance performance... Okay, somebody's watching that in the theatre, or I don't know if you watch dance in the theatre, but you you get what I mean. You do and they all end with like no a backflip, yeah, right? Yeah. Right, and it's like I don't know. They they use like the same moves, but they're different. Well, so dance if you, so how, the point, if you go and work? see Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake, for example, mm-hmm. um, not only is it an all male version of Swan Lake rather than having the swans be ballerinas, they're they're male ballet dancers, but importantly, the the actual choreography of that ballet is Matthew Bourne's choreography. And that, that doesn't mean he's not... I mean, I don't know enough about ballet to say that's a pas de deux, that's a whatever, that's an illustration. But, like, I know that... Um, but the point is that his choreography for that will be different to another version of Swan Lake because the music is what makes Swan Lake Swan Lake and then the choreography is what you go and see and the choreographer changes that from show to show. In the same way with a magic show... Like, the mu- the I'm not music equivalent to the magic show is the method. And yeah, the audience not, don't get to see the method. Right. Yeah, you, you, I'm not mm. saying you can't do double lift because someone else is doing that. What I mean is that if I go and see, I shouldn't be I shouldn't be going to see a magic show and recognizing not only the method but also the exact presentation and in often cases mm. the exact script. Mm-hmm. Like that, like if you see a mind reader do a thing where someone's thinking, say a mind reader has got someone to think of a playing card, and they want to work out what that playing card is. 
like every mind reader will go, okay, I want you to say in your head, ace, or say out loud, rather, ace two, three, four, five, six, seven. But obviously, we all know that that method is not how they found out the playing card. They know already. Mm-hmm. So in that moment when they're saying, say ace, two, three, four, they could say literally anything. They could make that spectator do literally anything, and they would still know what playing card it was at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And so the the only reason to, to do the, say, ace, two, three, four, is that they can't be bothered to think of anything else. Mm. And that's what we mean by, like, when, when you watch a magician and go, this is the same stuff as before, the mm. stuff that would be very easy to change, magicians don't change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes of, total sense. And, and, we, and we want to do that stuff differently because we want to do our own stuff and we want to be creative. But a pure side effect of that is that from a business point of view, it makes sense to perform magic on the assumption that people in the audience have seen magic before. Because most of them won't, but some of them will. And if you're trying to get booked for a corporate gig or a cruise ship or whatever, the person booking you has definitely seen magic before. Mm. So you're not going to impress them doing an invisible deck routine where you say, now shuffle the cards, take them out of the box first. You know, <laughs> they've seen that gag a thousand times before. <laughs> so if, if you want to be more successful in magic, do stuff no one's seen. And that doesn't need to be novel methods. Just present mm. something in a way I've not seen before. Yeah, that's illuminating. Because, yeah, because I, I think a lot of magicians kind of act under the assumption. And, and now that you pointed out, it is quite blatantly lazy. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. magicians are like, ah, oh, these guys have never seen a magi- magician before. I'll just, I'll just use this. I saw it on YouTube. Um, yeah. But when we're talking about the power players, right, the people that, the, the decision makers, in fact, that's like the opposite because they've seen so many, so many people do magic that uh, you really have. I, I never thought about it that way. Um, maybe that's why. I don't get booked, <laughs> but I don't. I don't do gigs anyway, so I don't know why I said that. Well, it's because doing close-up gigs is horrible. <laughs> yeah, I heard you say something interesting about that, which was that you don't do close-up. Oh, sorry, you do do close-up, but you only do it if you're in character, or is it like that? You're honest. So we rarely do close-up. I remember. We yeah, very, very, very rarely do it anymore. Um, in fact, our last close-up gig was uh, thirteen months ago. Um, and we do it as a double act and we do it as Morgan and West. Um, and uh, it's essentially we turn up and as you're doing close up, interrupt someone's conversation and force them to watch a six minute show and then walk away again. That's mm-hmm. how we do it. But even then, it, right, that's, it's even still you doing character work. work. If, if, you, if you're going to if you're going to interrupt someone, you might as well make it good. That's what yeah. <laughs> that's what we think. I think also in that six minutes of close-up that we do, we maybe do two tricks. We often do one trick, and the first four minutes, no magic happens. Hmm. That's interesting because there's a lot of oh, like magic books and stuff that will tell you that obviously, like, oh, you need to get like straight into it, like perform like a, a great effect that's going to catch their attention. But from what I'm getting from that, it's more. I guess your guys' personality and your presentation that you use to, to draw people in. Yeah, yeah that, basically, we, we, don't, we don't even draw them in. We don't give them an opportunity to not be drawn in. We basically turn up and just right. sort of metaphorically punch them in the face with us. Right. <laughs> and it's the same with it because people give that advice for performing on stage as well of going, you need to do some magic really quickly so people know you're a magician. And that's good advice as long as you're working on the assumption that you're really boring. Because <laughs> I like, guess that was our problem then, Benji. <laughs> well but honestly as in yeah yeah it, no, no. <laughs> people don't think about it but they're saying when, when you say to someone like well you need to do something really quickly it's like well yeah but you could do anything you could say something mm. interesting you could look interesting you could stand there and look weird and people will go this guy's weird what's going on <laughs> you know that's in especially on stage magic where people have paid to see you or paid to see whatever show you're part of they are already invested and if you're doing close-up and yes you are interrupting someone's conversation so you do have less goodwill to play with the point is that you need to do something that isn't that's going to engage the audience but that doesn't mean to be need to be lighting a piece of flash paper and producing a deck of cards because again if you're doing a corporate work chances are last year at christmas some guy lit a bit of flash paper and produced a deck of cards and Mm -hmm. and so when you do that some of the people at table are going to be like oh this again whereas if you rock up if you rock up dressed as a time traveler or a dragon or a slice of bread or whatever, then they're going to go, what the hell's going on here? And you've got their attention. And obviously you need to do something worthwhile and good to keep their attention, but you don't just need to go and do the fastest trick you can. Yeah. So it's kind of the same 
principle is I don't know the idea that people people don't buy the product they buy the result right so so as a magician um let's just say painting with a broad brush you're selling entertainment people really only care about the end result which is the the entertainment it's it's your job to figure out the the product or the feature or the method to, to, to get them there but that's not their job it's like they don't really care either way they just want the end result which is entertainment so as long as you can be entertaining you're meeting that desire without necessarily having to resort to hitting them with a trick straight away oh no you need to do magic because like, otherwise so, you're not a magician. Otherwise you're not a magician. If they book a magician and they say, what was that guy like? It's like, funny, but didn't do any tricks. The booker will be cross. Because they booked a comedian by accident. And um. entertain, entertainment is not... So I think a lot of magicians will say that, well, I'm an entertainer first and a magician second, which does imply that they don't think that their magic is entertaining. Hmm. So you... When we go and the first trick we do for when we do close up again, which is very rare, but we go and we do a trick and it involves three people and it's basically card to three loca three cards to three locations, mm -hmm. and it's very much a magic trick. We are going there and doing it, an impressive magic trick, but it takes like I don't know six minutes. Quite quite minutes it takes a long time. Yeah, it's, it takes a long time. But the point is that when we leave, those people have definitely seen a magic trick. And if someone said, "What was that?" they go, "These two funny guys came and did a funny magic trick," but it does need to be, your magic needs to be good because you can be the funniest person in the world, but if your magic tricks are really dull or obvious or not not fooling, people will still think you suck. Mm. Hmm. What would you make of, um, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of a, a video of Juan Tamaris. Um, it's a, I think it's a classic <laughs> where he, he comes in and kind of like what you're talking about with the first few minutes, he does a card trick, but it's not it's not really a card trick. It's, he calls it you know the fastest card trick in the world. And it just basically involves him shuffling the cards, dropping a bunch of them. Uh, he gets someone to select a card, uh, but then they don't show it to the audience, or he gets them to do it again. But this time he you know, throws it on the floor or whatever. And by the end of it, like there isn't even a trick. Um, he's basically just like ran around stage for like three minutes, just throwing cards around. Is that the kind of thing? You and then obviously he goes off and does like any card, any number, and like blows their mind. But that's how he starts. It's with this just totally ludicrous card trick that isn't even a card trick. I think you got to remember that someone like Juan Tamariz has a lot of goodwill from their audience to begin with. So the only times I've ever seen Juan perform as two magicians, and magicians love Juan, and so he can do whatever he wants, and they're going to give him the time to do it. Um, mm. I think in... Where's Juan from? He's from South America? Spain. Spain, he's I think. Spanish, oh, is, he? Is, is he Spanish? I, yeah, thought, I, think, I, he, I think he's actually Spanish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, but, yeah, you know, no, I think... but sort of, I imagine he does work like for real audiences but i've never seen him work a real audience other than on the paul daniels magic show or on best of magic maybe but um in, in the 80s but like i would assume that the magic he does for real people either he's a big enough name that they already they similarly have that goodwill already or he gets to doing magic faster like i think watching someone perform for magicians and doing stuff where all the magicians know that this is one time and he's going to do something amazing, they will often get away with stuff that an unknown performer would never get away with. Hmm. It's it, it's about it, it's it's a funny line because it is about entertaining people. It is about doing magic. It, it's not one thing. It's a mix of everything. You know, you, you've got to really be there in the moment with people and respond to how they're feeling about things and and go with your audience as best you can i think mm. yeah speaking of that um i'm imagining that skill comes in pretty handy or, or perhaps uh pretty crucial when you're performing uh for for a children audience which i've heard you did for a while um still do, still do. Um, we, i mean we most much of our work is for kids and, and and it's not exclusively a children's audience we we do family shows uh, quite often because we write um shows that appeal to the adults and the kids in the audience you know it's mm -hmm. that that's yeah. the way you make a really good family show because adults hate kids shows that are just for kids because they're mindless and don't have anything interesting and kids hate things that are just for adults because they don't understand why they're so dull. And so there's there's always a good line, a uh, middle line to be found. And again, from and a purely business own. sense, mm -hmm. you, you want your you want adults at a kids show to tell other adults you should go and mm. see this show. It's genuinely not a mind numbing hour of awfulness. 
Mm. You know, like <laughs> you know, if you're going to see Shark in the Park or something like that, the kids will like it, but they will be like, my brain has melted out my ears. Mm-hmm. Whereas right. if you have a kid's show that's got lots of jokes that are there for the adults or they're just laughing at them, and what you do is in a sufficiently fun way that adults can enjoy it on an adult level while kids enjoy it on a kid's level, mm-hmm. then those adults will go and tell their friends who have kids, you should definitely go and see this show. Whereas if Shark in the Park, Shark in the Park comes to town again, those adults are going to draw lots for who has to take all the kids while the others go to mm-hmm. the pub. It's like, you know, if, if you watch sort of series four through 11 of The Simpsons, that's the real sort of Tsar, the, the real sort of king of that sort of family ideal where you watch them hmm. as an eight-year-old and they're funny in one way. You watch them as a 15-year-old, they're funny in another way. You watch them as a 25-year-old, they're funny in another way. You watch them as a 35-year-old, they're funny in another way. There's, there's just layers to the humour and layers yeah. to the entertainment for everyone. And really your, um, yeah. You can just sort of uncrumple those shows to work out what's good about them. I was going to ask um, whether your experience, um, I don't know, maybe you can tell us how many years you were teaching, but did that come in, did that did that help you at all when it came to, to performing for children? You'd kind of already, like, you know, if you can hold their attention for an hour doing maths, how hard can it be to do magic? And maybe that's an oversimplification, but did that come into a play? A few of the skills we learned as teachers were useful for when we started doing family kid shows. But that is more about, I think, how to manage, as if you get kids on stage, how best to manage them. And also, actually, and this does apply for getting adults on as well, is that often when you see someone get a volunteer up on stage and things start to go wrong, it's because the person on stage is really not giving clear instructions or not making it clear what they want the person to do or isn't making it clear when they're talking to the person. And one of the things you learn as a teacher is that to make you want, you know, uh, the way it's phrased is, you want to give the kids an opportunity to succeed so if you expect them to stand a certain place or do a certain thing, you make it very clear they should stand there or, or do things like that. And another, another thing is you don't give out your resources before they're needed. So let's say you're doing a magic trick with like a plectrum or something like that. You don't start the trick by getting someone on stage and then handing them a plectrum and saying off and then doing all of the chat because they're just going to fiddle with that thing. Um, regardless of whether they're an adult or a kid, you only give it to them at the moment you need it. Mm. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm gonna say i understand that i've I've never done any children's uh performing stuff so because honestly it's scary man it's like that's the one thing that i think as a magician would be the most intimidating um, well this thing i think so kids I think are magicians are scared of it because yeah kids are very honest and will tell you right, right. kids don't politely clap kids don't pretend they haven't seen something that you've dropped or that they've seen they will let you know but also, also they really enjoy stuff. stuff kids they just re- enjoy stuff so many magicians spend all the time banging on about, oh, I like to instill a childlike state of wonder. And then you go, great, you perform for kids. They go, oh, no, I'd never perform for kids. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, if you're not going to do, if you're not going to perform for children, like, because that's the quickest way to instill a childlike state of wonder mm-hmm. is to, to perform for kids. Like, rather than going, hey, guys, I'm going to sit down and show you the first trick that I ever saw when I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. Why not show that trick to an eight year old? Yeah. Because if it's that good, the eight year old will really love it. And, and also they, they just sort of, they are unbridled in their reactions, both in terms of telling you when they don't like something and also telling you when they do like something, which is just joyful because you can do something fun or silly or magical on stage. And if kids like it, they will call out and shout about the fact that they like it. And it just becomes fun. It's just, yeah. just like so... kids sometimes laugh so much they throw up. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> which obviously is, a, is kind of weird, but is actually quite a good review. Like if a, if a, if a kid ha- loses control of their body functions in your show, as long as you're not dealing with it, that's pretty good. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I will. Uh, <laughs> I will bear that in mind if I ever uh, branch into that. Um, but I will not make any commitments as of yet. <laughs> I interrupt this podcast to give a brief shout out to thedailymagician.com. If you haven't already signed up for our daily emails, please head over to thedailymagician.com and sign up now. We promise you won't regret it. Yeah, let me go way back because uh, you mentioned Terry Pratchett at the beginning. I want to. I'm just curious. What is your favorite uh, Terry Pratchett book, both of you? Uh, I've got a real soft spot for Guards, Guards. I think. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I can't say which Pratchett book it is. Uh, it's definitely going to be one of the guards. Like of the the various groups of books, the Guards books are my favorite. Uh, yeah, I really gu- like crime books and stuff. So I'm Night, Night Watch. I tend to really enjoy again and again. Night Watch is cracking as well. Yeah, I haven't read that one yet. I got a huge kind of stack. I think it's the complete collection. I'm not sure for my birthday in uh, 
20, 2019, I think. Very nice. So I've been working through them. 45? For... No, there's more than that, aren't there? There's a lot. Yeah, there's, there's, it's really good, but it, 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 is that, it is that strange thing, I think, where it's hard to have a favorite one because the early, like I said, the Gars books, are, well, the early Gars books are really good and the late ones are really good, but the sort of, you know, the late ones are only good because of the good stuff that's come before them. It's like, you mm. know, it's it's the it's the chapstick on the face of the model, you know. It's the kind of it's great, but it's only great because of the work that's come before it. But does that mean it's still the best, you know? Yeah, and I was surprised to hear that. Um, like critically, apparently, the first few books, it's like, oh yeah, you know, he was just finding his finding his voice, kind of like hitting his stride. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? I love those books. Those are my favorites. <laughs> um, I'm actually just listening to the Color of Magic for the first time now because I tend to sort of consume everything on audiobook rather than actually reading. I'm really enjoying it. I, I, I had no idea what it was going to be like, and I'm really enjoying it. It's funny, isn't I it? Think you I can tell the difference in style in that you can. Uh, it's a lot. It's a bit more fantasy, I think. It, Color I of think Magic. Whereas, but not as much as I was expecting, if I'm honest. No, but I think the early books are a satire of the fant- of fantasy literature, whereas the yeah. later books are a satire of society. Yes. Mm. That's a yes. Yeah, I haven't heard it put like that. Um, wait, so you did like uh, you did theatre productions of Terry Pratchett books, like plural or just one? Uh, so there's a chap called Stephen Briggs, um, uh, who actually lives not very far from where I live now, um, who writes um, uh, theatrical adaptations of the Pratchett novels and has been doing so for the last fifteen years, twenty years maybe. And some of those are available that you can buy the license to perform them. Um, and so we did. Four. What do we do? Weird Sisters, Mort, The Truth, and Going Postal. Going Postal. There you go. Yeah. And um, would you say any of the kind of, um, how do you put it in a word? <laughs> any of the sort of, uh, I don't know. I don't want to say magical realism because maybe that's the wrong genre, but definitely sort of surrealism, sort of ish in Terry Pratchett has played into the characters you've created uh, in in your sort of current magic show. So oh, I would Pratchett, say our, our style is very deliberately Pratchetty. Yeah, it's a huge Pratchett's writing is a huge influence on our style. Pratchett, The Simpsons, and Eddie Izzard are our three sort of main influences. Um, yeah, and uh, it's it's not gone unnoticed over the years. Let's put it like that. Yeah, and I think the thing with the thing we kind of aim for is that a lot of what Pratchett does is um holding a ridiculous mirror to the real world. And I think mm. what a lot of our stuff does, if you look at something like um uh politics our show and the book a lot of what that show is is holding a, a sort of satirical or ridiculous mirror to magic mm. because obviously we're magicians and so and a lot of what we do is sort of a subverted play on magic i guess mm-hmm. yeah so that's uh thank you for lining up that so i could just hit it off the tee um i was wanting to ask you about politics as it would be uh, horribly rude if i left it and, and we didn't because it only came out i was going to say this year but we're last actually in twenty twenty one. So it came out last year. It's because all all, um, the, all all the recent times have become just a big amalgam of time. I, know. Hasn't it? I, know. I feel like it was last. I feel like it was last month that it came out. <laughs> to be honest. Um, so anyway, yeah. Just uh, can you talk to us about that? I've heard it was a smash success. I wanted to know what it was like from your perspective as the, the producers and writers of it. Uh, so I mean, well, te- technically, right? the producers would be Vanishing Ink. Yeah. Um, Vanishing Ink. So all the layout and. Uh, the editing and all that sort of thing was done by them. We wrote the words and then sort of had to chop them down. Producer of the content. Oh, the content. Um, I mean, we just wanted to write a magic book unlike a magic book we'd read, um, which was uh, all about sort of uh, something that took you through a show from start to finish and talked about why the show um, existed. Yeah, we, we, we often talk about it like a making of documentary, but like, oh, like, an, so... It is the tricks and how to do them and stuff, but it's largely us just going, here's how and why we made the show in the way we made it and why the tricks are like that they are they are and why we wrote this and why we wrote that and why we changed this and why we changed that. Because usually most books about stage magic are, here are some tricks, maybe put three of them together and think of a theme. Mm-hmm. And, and so what, what would you say would be specifically, I guess, what's your kind of... <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've heard, you know, like the pen pitch, like if you had to sell me the pen, like what, what would you say is really different in your book? Because obviously, I mean, like you said, there's a wealth of magic books out there, but I, I'm really interested because um, I've loved everything you guys have been saying so far. So what what was it that, you know, when you guys sat down to, to write it and, and you, as you said, you didn't want it to just be a set of tricks or try and put three together. What did you really explore that you don't didn't think had been, had been explored anywhere else? 
essentially, I think the thing we we've never seen before is a full show laid out in order. So there are reasons that your first trick should be your first trick. There's a reason that you should close the first half on one type of trick and open the second half on another type of trick. There's a reason that you might put something in the first half that you'll call back at the end and where you put that call back. Hmm. There's a reason you choose the lighting you choose, the sound you choose. And we, we had not come across a magic book that really took you through a full theatrical show from start to finish. Methods and scripts and ideas and thoughts and lighting and everything about it. Absolutely everything about it. Huh. I really like that. I, I, and I'm, um, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, people can go find that. Do you guys, is it at your website? Is it just, you know, do you well, sell it? I was actually, oh, yeah, I was trying to find that out because I wanted to obviously plug it on the podcast and, and from what i can see it looks like it's done so well it's it's sold out do you know if there's plans for a, yeah i believe it's basically print? out of print yeah so it's it's been reprinted once we don't know if it's going to get reprinted again um i haven't spoken to vanishing ink about it recently um but uh, uh if if people are based in the uk and want to pay about 10 quid postage you can email me directly through our website and i've got five copies left on on the shelf so wow Oof, that's exclusive or in general email vanishing ink and ask when it's going to come back and they might reprint it yeah <laughs> It's a good idea too. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, from what I hear, a lot of people are saying it's uh, you know, it's one of those right where you you come across it. Maybe let's say you only get into magic like I don't know a year from now, so you, you weren't you weren't around for the first run, and people saying, oh yeah, this is a must read book. You got to read it like uh, you know, must read if you want to do a stage show. And then you're just like, how am I meant to read it? It's out of stock. So I'm assuming sooner or later it's. Just, I'm hoping it will come back. Uh... Uh, Badger Vanishing Ink. Send Vanishing Ink messages because if they know there's demand, <laughs> they'll reprint it. Whereas if they don't know there's demand, they won't. So, mm -hmm. All right. so for those people that are lucky enough to have it, what, what would you say is like, you know, if you had to tell them, go to this page, you know, here's something that not many magicians that, you know, people may have overlooked this part, like stuff in there that you as the writer are really proud of, but you're like, I want to make sure people pick up on this, or maybe you wouldn't catch this in the first reading, or you had to sort of dig around for that. What would be the most sort of like, go check out this page if you have one page to check out? The Terminator 2 quote, if you can find that, then, yeah. then let me know. Fair enough, yeah. I mean, genuine, genuinely, I think most people that have, a lot of people have said to us, they, this is the first magic book they've ever read cover to cover, because it is a magic show in order, so you tend to start at the beginning and work your way through. It's hard to dip in and out of. It's um, hard because we're saying, two tricks ago, we talked about this. Again, the, part of the thing we were trying to write is a show about tricks that relate to one another um, and say, this trick plays on the ideas we've set up with this trick. This trick only works tonally because it is different to the trick before and after it. Um, so yeah, I do think a lot of people with have literally read every page. Um, mm. But yeah, but there is a Terminator 2 quote nestled in there. Oh, is it like an obscure one or is it is it obvious? Nope. It's I mean, it's, it's, obvious. Also, it's, it's also technically a Terminator 1 quote, I think. I think, or rather, the Terminator quote. Yeah. Um, I don't think it features in any of the other films. It might feature in the in the, the most recent one. Is it Dark Fate, I think it's called? Yeah, I never got around to that. Is, is any good? Yeah, it's all right. It's nice to see Linda Hamilton and Arnie back on screen together. Um, yeah. Other than that, it's fairly standard modern trash. So, you know. Huh. Okay. Well, speaking of, of fairly standard modern trash, um, <laughs> actually, I don't have a link for that. I, I did. <laughs> um, but um, I was, I was like, this is either going to be so good. Or <laughs> no, there's nothing. <laughs> I, I actually, uh, so I, I got disconnected for a second. Uh, my, my internet went down. Um, for everyone listening, sorry about that. Um, but I, I wanted to ask a question because I'm really interested by this. Um, and because we're all about kind of like thinking differently and stuff. And and I wonder. Obviously, it's implicit that your background in, in theatre had a big influence on your performance style. Um, but I'm wondering how much influence did um, teaching have on, on your performance and how you, you interact with audiences? Um, a little, not really a lot, because I think our, our teaching style was very much influenced by, by theatre. Um, huh. So the, 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 the theatre is what came first, after all, um, for us. Um, we only really, uh, really, yeah, really I think got there. People always get too too excited or got too excited when they found out that we were teachers who were also magicians on the weekend. And mm. I think there were students that that really like came into my classroom with cake expectations about what it would be like, mm. and then found out that I was just making them do chemistry. <laughs> and because the the skill of teaching is a very different one to the skill of being a performer, like there are there are parallels, but you're trying to achieve a very different thing from your audience. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it does help. We are we are good at managing children, especially, but also audience members 
because that is part part of teaching is behavior management and that's that's not only just dealing with a kid who's kicking off but literally managing the behavior of people and giving instructions and stuff mm. and i think even being able to uh kind of interpret behavior in the first place is this good i don't know some people maybe don't even get to get to that level right so yeah i think it maybe gives you a you know gives you a sense of like I, guess, I don't want to say reading people in a sort of Darren Brown sense, I mean like that, but as in like getting a vibe of someone of how of how they're reacting, especially again with kids, how they're reacting and um and and and, and I don't mean again, I don't mean behavior in just, you know, like doing your best P's and Q's, that kind of thing. I mean like where how they're responding to being on stage, whether they feel overwhelmed or whatever or thing, and how to deal with that as well. Right. Um so um I think we're nearing i don't know because i got disconnected but i think we're nearing <laughs> the time that we said that we'd come I mean, up so you still know what time it is right like like clocks didn't stop while you were gone well i am five hours different so i mean that you know that can mess me up in the st but yeah you're right i don't have an excuse there um but i we, we did have one question so it's kind of like the big question that we like to ask, ask i guess i'm actually really i'm actually really interested to hear what you guys answer is for this um because yeah, so far your answers have not been um yeah. what i was expecting have you to hear, me? which yeah, is like which is always uh fun you know it yeah it's for more enjoyable listening so um, so thank you for that yeah yeah uh, and so this is kind of the question that we, we we first asked andy gladwin um and then we kind of tried to ask a lot of other people as well so where do you basically where do you derive meaning in magic as far as you know there's a lot of other things that you could be doing and I, I'm, I'm assuming i'm kind of guessing like already that you can talk about you know it's less to do with the magic and more to do with, you know and i won't put words in your mouth but i'll be interested to hear what you say but we've asked you know what where do you derive meaning from magic because there's a lot of really intelligent thinkers in magic right um with with good problem solving yeah. brains <laughs> okay well maybe maybe not in this call there you go there's the answer yeah but um where do you guys derive meaning from magic and and from from performance as far as like what it i guess contributes to the world i, I mean it's a pretty big question i mean but, yeah. i don't know it just kind of boils down to like you always have to choose right like okay what what problem am i going to work on solving and there's a lot of problems out there obviously some more perhaps worthy than others to, to go after so what for you makes it worth your time to sort of solve magical problems and, and perform magic i mean i I honestly, I think that magic is an inherently meaningless thing to do in that <laughs> it's so I, I, we are big believers in the fact that uh, the art, the art is an important thing and an important side of life. And I think if anything, the last year or nine months or whatever has shown people that mm. without art and artists and stuff, life is pretty bleak and, you know, and everyone that's sat at home over the last nine months watching box sets is relying on the work of artists and stuff mm. so it's not that i think art and, and the performance of art is is meaningless obviously there is a definite purpose to it and one of the really nice things about our job is the fact that we get to perform for people who and we just make them happy uh it's really like mm. and you see we will get kids come up to us after the show whose parents would say they would usually be very nervous to speak to an adult or whatever but really wants to talk to us or really inspired about science or about magic from looking at us and that's a really great thing to do but generally, we just, yeah, we like doing art because it makes people happy and it brightens their day. But I think magic itself has no inherent meaning. Well, it brightens our day as well. We, we, we get a kick Oh, yeah, brightens our day, yeah. You know, we get a kick um, out standing on stage and showing off. Oh, um, the main reason we do it is it fuels our massive egos. Yes. But that is also the main reason that all magicians do magic and anyone that says otherwise is a liar. Hmm. But... But like, we, I, I don't we, think magic has think inherent meaning. meaning. I, I, yeah, I agree with Rob. I don't think ma magic inherently has any meaning. I really don't subscribe to this idea of kind of like giving people a sense of wonder and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I mean, I magic's a great way of making yourself feel smart and important, but that mm. doesn't mean that's true. <laughs> well, you've certainly exposed me. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's, it's, it's a danger. It's, it's a trap that a lot of magicians fall into mm. is believing starting to believe that the the tricks that they do where the important word there is tricks where there is a there is a secret to it there is a trick to it that just because you know a secret that someone else doesn't know makes you somehow better than that person mm. um mm. you know you, you don't see oh i don't know uh, for the sake of argument like someone for the sake of argument who works in uh, a factory making televisions who knows how they you connect up the various bits that 
yeah. uh, allow the, the the screen to to function properly you don't see them sort of because they know that secret inverted commas mm. that doesn't mean that they th necessarily think they're better than anyone else well, or like I'm... a mechanic or a plumber or something yeah. like that you know it's you know, you never see a plumber talk about the the you know their fundamental understanding of of the you know hydraulics or whatever or the of the, <laughs> the the liquid that makes up that. Well, basically, you know, or human psychology just because they can connect up a U bend. Well, and, <laughs> and for that point, I've ne so the only people I've ever heard describe themselves as masters of human psychology are magicians, despite the fact I know quite a few people who literally have master's degree in human <laughs> psychology. Like some screen, doesn't it? Like, and, we, and that, that's the thing in it. I know quite a few psychologists that we've met throughout our career and stuff, and not one of them has ever said, well, obviously, in doing this work, I've become a master of human psychology. They never say that. But magicians, every 10 seconds, are going to tell you that they're masters of human psychology because they can do a double lift. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We actually had a psychologist on the podcast. And if anything, she was less confident in her answers than most magicians that we yeah. have on. Oh, so you, you know the Dunninger-Kruger thing, which is like the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Someone who really knows a lot about something knows how much of that thing they still don't know and therefore is fairly humble about it. Someone who doesn't actually know a lot but thinks they know a lot thinks they know a lot because they're not even aware of all the stuff they don't know. And so I think a lot of magicians, because they know the secret to three tricks, have decided that they're basically Sherlock Holmes crossed with Shaft. Whereas actually, you know... <laughs> which is a show I would to, watch. Which is a show I would watch. But, you know, like, to get the heart... I mean, to get even deep in the heart, to get the spleen of it, really, deep down, magic is just knowing one thing more than the person watching. And that doesn't make you better or smarter than that person. Hmm. Yeah, fair enough. I think that's an interesting... Yeah, it, it's Mm -hmm. Sorry, Bench. Yeah, uh, it just reminds me of we, we talked recently. Well, we talked someone about how come like the one percent are kind of obsessed with magic. Uh, I, 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 what, do I, mean, what do you mean the one percent? So when I talk about that, so I read this article recently in Forbes um, that really interested me because it was talking about kind of um, just this. Well, when I say one percent, I don't really like that term. Well, what I mean by that is just these people that have pretty much everything get obsessed with magic and so i think that that's interesting because this is what basically what this Forbes article was going into and talking about was the fact that um like you like you talked about that magic and knowing something that other people don't uh can almost uh, yeah it can give you that superiority or, or make you feel better in that way and that's not really what, what it's about and uh, it's, it's just interesting i really don't have a question or point here at all it's just <laughs> that, that just there's a counterpoint there's a one of the things that you do find nowadays is that with for example, the super rich, you often see articles written about the super rich talking about the weird habits they have or the kind of things they're like. And there is maybe an argument that the reason that we're constantly looking for like, reasons that those people are super rich is because otherwise the real answer is that they got lucky. And mm. that someone, yeah, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk don't want to admit that they got lucky and someone else, someone or else didn't. The workforce. Or, or, or exploited or massively exploited their workforce. Yeah. And so instead they need to be like, oh, I'm the kind of person that gets up at 3 a.m. and works out. And actually, there are plenty of people that could get up at three AM and work out when we'd have become billionaires, but the super rich don't want to admit yeah. that they yeah they got there by luck or exploiting people. So I mean, to be fair, maybe there's a different class because when I, I have actually heard a lot of people talk about luck, but maybe this is a different class. Like there's the rich, and then there's the super rich. And obviously, I haven't talked to many of the super rich, but from the rich people I have talked to, it's kind of like a lot of them will admit they were lucky, but it's not like you can. It's like the combo, right? It's like I always talk about, uh, this is going to be a stupid analogy because none of us are American, but in American football, um, uh, the, the linebacker or the runner, whatever the person is called that runs with the ball, um, their job is like, you know, they catch the ball and they run, right? They run for the other side of the field to score a touchdown. And there's always like going to be a defensive line from the other team that's going to stop them. And so whenever you get the ball as that runner, your job is just to run out that wall. And uh, it is your job to make sure every time you get the ball, you run at that wall. Most of the time, you're going to be kind of unlucky. The, the wall is going to just slam you. You're going to fall to the ground. You're not going to make that touchdown. <laughs> probably, Americans are cringing right now. Um, but occasionally, you know, like every every so often, there's going to be like a little gap in the wall. And obviously, if you were just relying on luck and you, you hadn't actually made sure you were running out that wall in the first place, you would have never made it through. Like you had to make sure you were putting that in position in in the position in the first place. Yeah, and it's, so a, like, it's actually a brilliant yeah. analogy that because um, and what privilege is is you need the ball in the first place. Yeah, mm. and so so Reese and I are as middle class white men are often given the ball, and so it's very easy for us to constantly run mm -hmm. at the wall of defenders. 
because the ball keeps giving, getting given to us. And so we, and I'm not saying we haven't worked hard. We've worked very hard over our career. Because the second but, layer of that then is that if, if you are, if, you, if you're lucky enough to be given the ball and you do run at that wall, if you don't have, then once you get through the other side, if you don't have the, the skill or the ability to carry on going, then you're also going to fall down at that hurdle. You know, like if you're, a, if you're, a, if you're a manufacturer of leatherette and you make substandard leatherette, but you get a lucky break and loads of people buy you the leatherette, they're not going to buy it again because it's rubbish. Whereas if they like it, they'll buy it again. And they, they by chance found out about you, you know, or anything like that. Because yes, cause you get a lot of people talking about the whole kind of, yeah, the, the, the luck factor thing of being like, oh, but the people got lucky, the people that tried and tried and tried and tried. Um, but it, at the same time, it's very easy to ignore the fact that lots of people are trying and trying, but don't come from the same position or have the same mm -hmm. idea as other people. And so, yeah, reason I come from a very privileged position and, and like, yeah, we did do a lot of work and we've worked very hard over the last years, but that really is like a sprinkling of cinnamon on top of a cappuccino full of privilege. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I guess. Like, like you said earlier, Don and Kruger, I'm not here to say I, I know the answer, but... Um... I certainly resonate with what you're saying. And I, I think we're on the same page. Um, I'll probably re-listen to this podcast and get annoyed that I didn't have anything smarter to say, but <laughs> thanks for your contributions. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's it's definitely an interesting one, isn't it? Just this whole question of... Um, it is a huge social question of obviously just like privilege and the difference that makes between your desire to be successful and like the where you come from right and this is something that we it's actually interesting because this is exactly uh what we ended up talking about last time um with magic uh it was weird that we ended up going somehow finding ourselves at the subject after asking the question that we did um but it's interesting because there was a i talked about this last time with Anna Gladden, but there was there was a, a map of, of london right uh so i was talking to my friends who's who's doing his, his master's in um in geography and we were discussing uh, pretty much this topic right about just like privilege and um the differences that that makes versus wanting to get out of your situation versus you know like i don't know that and again i don't think i'm definitely not qualified to make uh a statement one way or the other but um it's interesting because he was telling me about how this map right of of um london uh it had the poverty spots um and so they showed the 1901 one and then when they went to the one in, in in 2020 um it was exactly the same and the poverty spots had stayed where they were in london um and so it's such an interesting thing right that you would think with social development uh and with moving forward that these people should if the system was working or if, they, if that system was even in place in the first place have been brought up with it um, whereas they haven't. And so it, it's, it's an interesting thing, right? Like you, like you're saying, is it like, it's, it's all well and good saying like, you know, I don't know. It's all well and good saying like, you know, uh, we need to give them like the, the fishing rod so they can fish like whatever, blah, blah, blah. but like, if they don't have the, like, for instance, like that works for us. Cause we were born, like you were saying with the privilege of having the fishing rod in the first place and having someone tell us how to use it. Whereas in the, in their case, they have to learn everything from scratch. And anyway, I don't want to digress, digress too much on this, but it, it is well, a I really interesting point. To, to direct this back to magic, at least tangentially, that I think the thing to consider when talking to any magician about their success or their work is a thing called is survivorship bias, which is that, and survivorship bias is that people that have got to a certain place through whatever means will think that the way they did it was the right way to do it. Mm. So we could say, we could say, well, look, we worked really hard. We worked really chores. We did all this stuff. We wrote all these shows. We came up with all the material. That's why we're successful. But honestly, part of the reason we've been we've been able to do so much work, not in the last year, obviously, but the previous years, is that we bumped into a guy outside a gig who wanted to work with us and then booked us into a bunch of venues. And we probably would have found work without bumping into him, but he now books our work for us. And that is where a lot of our work comes from. So if we'd not bumped into him, maybe we wouldn't be on this podcast talking about how to be successful. Hmm. And I think you've always got to keep in mind when, when someone says, well, here's how I did it. And therefore that's how it's done. That often those people might not actually know what it is made them successful. Yeah. Because other people and, might've tried that exact same thing and failed. Hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, it's like, well, you've still only got like one life. So it's not like the answer is to purposely, I don't know when you get those opportunities, like you, you know, bumping into that guy outside the gig, it's like, well, yeah, 
but I'm still going to take this opportunity because I know you're saying about like survivorship bias. Um, or maybe I don't, maybe this is a stupid point, but I don't know. It's like, you still want to be like, if you are one of the survivors in this uh, analogy. Yeah. The point I'm making is that if in that, and that, so if you're looking at us and saying like, how do you get to be where we are? And we can say, obviously we did this, we did that. We did this many Edinburgh fringes. We did that much touring in the, um, around village halls. We wrote this many shows. We worked this hard. And all of that is good advice, but you might do everything that we did and not become successful. Mm-hmm. Right. Because also, you know, because we also, you know, have careers we can fall back on so we could take financial risks and it not be a burden. Our first Edinburgh show, we went and basically put our student loans into it. And if we it had been a huge failure, we'd have lost those and it would have basically been okay. Whereas a lot of people don't have the opportunity to do that. And the point is that, especially in our industry, there's a lot of people being like, look, here's the one weird tip you need to be successful when they're completely ignoring everything else. And and also, yeah, you, you can't necessarily guarantee that you're going to make an inverted comma business out of things. You know, it's um, magic suffers horribly, I think, from people wanting to make capital B business out of it, as does all entertainment. I mean, look, now as a result, we've got things like X Factor, Britain's Got Talent, America's Got Talent, etc., which just boils art and entertainment down to the how can I make money out of it route. And it's just quite sad and a bit tiresome. Um, you you have to do something because you want to do it. You don't have to do something because you love doing it. You have to do something because you want to do it, I think. Yeah. Actually, no, here's what I... Um, here's probably a better way of putting what I was uh, going to say before so I don't sound too stupid. There's a there's actually a book. Um, I think it's called Good to Great by uh, Jim Collins, who's like a business consultant. And uh, he talks about something called the, the Stockdale Paradox, which is... Uh, I believe it derives from a man uh, obviously named Stockdale who was a, a prisoner of war and his and he basically survived a, a great number of years in, in prison I think it was in Vietnam perhaps and his uh, almost philosophy that saw him through when others uh, didn't manage to was uh, brutal kind of sorry, not brutal but like complete acceptance of like the brutal facts of that the reality is that you're living in combined with complete like optimism and, and faith in the eventual outcome because even if because it almost doesn't matter like if you fail or you succeed you almost have to go at it with the same attitude anyway right because if you go at it with the attitude of oh it's you know so i should buy it's like it's I'm probably not gonna happen to me it's just luck well obviously then you're not going to so either way you kind of have to do it and act as if it is going to happen to you while still accepting the facts of like, okay, look, I got like zero gigs in front like that. This isn't working. This isn't working. But you still have to have that optimism because what is the alternative, right? I mean, optimism is just a way of, of getting through things and, and you all sort of kind of going, well, I don't have any gigs, but maybe I'm going to change it. It's just changing based on the face of evidence. Like consultants on the whole are... You know, we, we, when we went to university, we knew we know a lot of people have become consultants. And when they go into management consultancy, they don't know what their job is. They don't know what they're doing half the time. Um, like I've, I've just had a quick look at Wikipedia on this book. And uh, the seven characteristics of good to great companies. Number one is level five leadership. Leaders who are humble, but driven to do what's best for the company. Or in other words, someone who gets on with it. Like the, it, it's just about doing what you need to do. It's also worth noting that optimism aside, if you've had no gigs this month or last month or the month before and you need to pay your mortgage, go and get a job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's um, it, Michael Vine, uh, to, to paraphrase slightly, um, because uh, the, the language is a bit outdated. Um, Michael Vine uh, said to us once, um, uh, don't do your best because you might be rubbish. Do what you need to do. And... Uh, that's what it's about just working out what you have to do that's all it is get that minimum viable i think that's actually you in in research not well i guess in prepping for this i heard an interview of you where you talked about how a lot of your shows you don't spend i don't want to misrepresent you but you don't spend more time than you need to crafting the script you just craft enough to get out there and perform and then edit via kind of like live. Oh, this works. This doesn't work. They like this. They don't like this. Um, 
not really the question. It just struck me as a similar. Yeah, because you're listening to your audience. Because ultimately, if you if you're doing a show for an audience, they have a part to play in the feedback. Because you can do a really good show which you're convinced is amazing, and if you put it in front of one audience and they don't like it, it might be that it's not for that audience. If you put it in front of ten audiences and none of them like it, then you might be performing for the wrong sorts of audiences. So you change the sorts of audience people perform for. If you do it a hundred times for a hundred sort of different sorts of audiences and none of them like it. You probably should have started listening a lot earlier and changed things as you go. That's the that, that's what we mean by that. Is is the audience? You've got a responsibility with an audience as a performer. It's not just for you. Otherwise, you could just do it in your bedroom. Mm. Hmm. Well, um, I don't know if we have any any more questions. Thank you guys so much for being so honest and open with us and uh, You're very welcome. answering Thanks, all of our questions. Um, we don't want to go too much over time because we said we were trying to keep it to this time. But thank you so much. If there's anything you guys want to add or plug, um, we want to give you the opportunity now. If people want to get in touch with you, uh, if you don't want them to get in touch with you, uh, to as, as well. But yeah, everything on the website goes straight through to us, morganwest.co.uk. Um, check out our YouTube stuff, uh, and also if you haven't got Parlour Tricks, find us on the socials, that kind of stuff. You know, uh, if you want to get hold of Parlour Tricks and haven't got a copy, email Vanishing Inc. and say when are you reprinting it. That's the that's the thing to do. Mm -hmm. okay. And if you want, if you want to catch the best show, I believe that one's in eighteen eighty five. Right, so you find a time. Yeah, it, well, we we leave we leave in eighteen eighty eight. That's the that's canonically when we leave. Um, but uh, it's, it's, three uh, full years of Morgan and West performances. Yeah, we give up in eighteen eighty eight because of a, a cauliflower shortage. Yep. Oh, <laughs> happens to all of us. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess on that all right. fantastic note, uh, we'll we'll end the podcast out. <laughs> All right, cheers, guys. Thanks very much. Thank you, Thank you guys so much.